Well, hey, everybody. Welcome. I'm so glad you're here today. My name is Ryan. I'm one of the pastors on staff. And I've got a very, very special treat. We've been in a series the last five weeks this year called Healthy Sexuality. And as you guys know, I've shared a lot of my story as someone who was pretty broken and had very unhealthy sexuality. And God did a lot of change and healing and rescue in my life. And I know a lot of people are struggling with this themselves or live with someone or have lived with people who have challenges in this realm too. That said, if, uh, if you're a parent and your students in here, we gave a disclaimer at the start of the series that this would be for more mature audiences, not that we're gonna show gross things or talk about sex in a gross way, but today will probably be the deepest dive in the most mature vein of this subject. So if you have a student in here and you're not really comfortable, I would say probably 14, 15, like high school age on up that uh, this is like applicable for, but I'll leave that to you. But I just wanna give the disclaimer because I don't wanna get um, any, you know, I just would hate to talk about this and you feel very uncomfortable with where your student is. So we're not trying to embarrass anyone, but just wanted to give that out there. But like I said, my name's Ryan, and part of my journey of healing and recovery, you guys got to hear from my friend and mentor, Chuck Moore, the other day, who's, who's, the, founder, who's the founder of Men's Healthy Sexuality, and his wife uh, started the women's, the women's uh, ministry. We're also doing Transforming Betrayal, and those have launched here at our church. If you're struggling with any issues as a male or female, encourage you to get involved in those groups. But I went to MHS to get help with my challenges, and I was recommended by my good friend and counselor, Jordan McNeely. Jordan's an awesome guy that I met in my journey when my life and my marriage was in the pit, and I needed a way out. Someone recommended Jordan to me, and then Jordan recommended Chuck, and then um, here we are. So Jordan and I are going to share today, and I'll let Jordan introduce himself uh, just a little bit, but what we're gonna do is we're gonna do question and answer. And so we have a bunch of 23 questions that you guys have submitted. Um, some of them are like kind of multiples, and some, um, some of them are pretty challenging. So we're gonna do our best to tackle these. Ones that are more theological, I'll probably take the lead on, but Jordan's a man of God, knows the word, he'll jump in too, but ones that are more clinical, Jordan will take on. So I'm gonna let Jordan just kind of introduce himself and tell a little bit about, about who, who he is. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. My name is Jordan McNeely. I am a licensed professional clinical counselor and I'm a certified sex addiction therapist. Um, I work up in Cincinnati. Um, that's pretty much all you need to know about me professionally. I do wanna say that uh, there are a lot of questions that are more about doctrine than they are about clinical practice. And when I speak about mental health and especially sex addiction, I'm speaking as an expert. On the questions that are more of like Christian doctrine, I've talked to a lot of people, I've read a lot of books, know the Bible pretty well, but in those regards, I'm a layman. So I'm not a pastor, I'm not a theologian, um, and it definitely doesn't necessarily reflect the general beliefs about my profession, because the boards have their own opinions on a lot of this stuff. But um, I'm gonna weigh in on those questions as best I can from a Christian perspective. That's good. And if there's any question we don't answer right, like I said, blame Amber. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just kidding. That's, I'm just joking. Now, she, she's fielded all these and compiled it, so thank, actually, you can thank Amber. She's helped a lot with this and get this organized today. And just our entire team. So, um, so we're gonna just jump right in, and if we have time at the end, if you have a follow-up question or a question you brought, if your question was not submitted, um, either paper or um, like online, it matters to us, but it might not get precedence today because we're, we're going with the ones that we had first and so we've had a little time to think and pray about. So um, the first question is, can you be married in God's intended way without being married by the law of the land? This question is coming in the context of a couple being together for 20 plus years but one, one being disabled and the medical cost um, would be, hold on, let me see, get to the, would be severe. Um, I'm gonna take that one first. Um, I'm gonna say, I think being a disciple comes with a cost. There's a cost of discipleship. Any, Jesus says anyone that comes after me has to count the cost. And that cost can sometimes be steep financial cost. So, we believe in marriage and we don't believe that there's caveats on that stuff. And so, um, and I know it might be really challenging, that might not be the answer if that's you, but God is calling you to be married and to live with each other when you're not married, if you're in 
uh, like a romantic relationship is not God's best for your life. And so no matter what the cost is, financially, whatever, um, I, I would say that the right thing is to get married and honor God and let him, a lot of times we can miss out on the provision of God because we choose not to honor him and we choose our own path. So what might be really steep financially or friendship wise or in other ways, we could miss out on ways God wanted to blow our socks off, but he says, hey, if you're bent on your own way, I'm not gonna do that. But when we yield, there's things, God's abundant uh, provision opens up the storehouse. He says, test me in this stuff. But um, I would say that God is calling you to get married and uh, living together is not the same thing as being married. It's, it's not, and it doesn't honor God like if you're born again to do that. So we'd love to do a marriage for you. If you wanna get married and you're here, we would love to perform a wedding for you. We will do that, we wanna serve you, we want God's best for you. So there we go, anything to add? I think the only thing that I would add is there is a distinction between Christian marriage and civic marriage. Mm. The federal government's only been involved in marriage for like about 100 years. Yeah. Um, but living together and being married, marriage is supposed to be an agreement between two people, the community, and God. It's not a secret. It's something that everyone knows is going on, right? Amen. And so there's a difference between like having a religious ceremony and committing yourselves to the community and to God and like having it registered with the federal government or two different things. But if you're living together, especially if you're involved in a certain kind of uh, physical interactions, then you should be married officially. Amen. Um, so some of these I'm gonna roll together because there's some, some of them are some overlap. One, the first part of this question, how do you reconcile having sexual partners outside of marriage before you were married? And then, the, well, we'll just, I'll, I'll tackle that part first. Um, I think, you know, uh, this can be hard stuff. It can be really tempting. A lot of people make mistakes, especially if you're young in your faith or not like super mature in your faith or weren't in the faith. Things happen. I'm not saying that's a license for sin, but you reconcile it by uh, like repenting and, and being different the rest of your life. So just because we've made mistakes before we are married doesn't mean that we have to continue in that, but there's also grace for it. Everything that is done that um, is not according to God's word and God's best for us, there's loads of grace and mercy and forgiveness for. We just gotta ask for it. Now, it doesn't mean that sometimes we don't carry around some of that stuff. It doesn't mean sometimes we don't carry around a unplanned pregnancy or an STD or emotional or spiritual wounds. And so there's stuff that goes along with that that I believe we're called to live into. And there's things that like maybe you can't get past some of that. Well, there's, there's things with prayer, there's things with counseling that, um, that there, there's a lot of resources out there for you. But the first thing is the cross paid it all. And uh, if we, it, it says if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When it says reconcile, I assume it means emotionally reconcile, not like reconcile with your other partners before marriage. Um, I'm assuming. I'm assuming, yeah, I'm assuming. Um, there's a lot that needs to be grieved there because, uh, and this will come up a couple times, there is no such thing as no strings attached sex. And I might get into the weeds a little bit about the neurochemistry of that, but there's no such thing. And you can't go back and change the past, but you can grieve those things and live a holy life moving forward. And you can be a whole person. Uh, Jesus still does miracles. Uh, and you can, I hesitate to use the term get over because I don't necessarily mean that like, it will be as if that stuff never happened. You can't go back and change the past, but you can be whole. Yeah, and, and, and I would say too that a lot of times, Paul says all other sins uh, uh, people commit outside their body. So there's like soul ties. So like he said, you can, you can just run through a different person every night and think there's nothing to it, but we, we kind of get what uh, like, uh, we receive yes. in that sense. And so there might be a lot of soul ties. There might be a lot of brokenness and wreckage and drainage that you're dealing with. And, and that is stuff that's like gotta be addressed. And that's why things like Celebrate Recovery, Men's Healthy Sexuality, Transformed by uh, Betrayal, by all these different things, counseling are so important because we don't realize the imprint that stuff leaves on our soul. It leaves indelible marks. 
and it's not just something that's recreational. I know the world would say, oh, with ever, whenever, whoever, but it leaves marks on our souls. And so there is a lot to work through. God is powerful enough to move us through it, but it's not a fire we just play with and think that um, we're not gonna be touched or burned or hurt by it. And it says, if you save yourself for marriage, how do you figure out your sexual compatibility after you are married when it feels like a struggle? I'll defer. <laughs> <laughs> um, no matter who you get married to, it's all, the, the likelihood that you're gonna have the same libido is basically none. Uh, the answer to this is you both need to grow in service. And to try out a bunch of people, try out a bunch of people sexually to see who you're sexually compatible with, that isn't gonna work for several reasons that I wanna take up a lot of time enumerating. It won't work for several reasons. And one of the big reasons that I will take time is it's gonna change, it's gonna change over time. Uh, a natural um, progression at the beginning of a relationship, there's a lot of passion and there's a lot of pleasure and then you have to like get over the, the novelty and the experimentality, if that's a word, of that stage and then things kind of settle down a little bit and you, that's a lot of times when people go, oh, well I don't love them anymore because they thought that this would always bring them the most pleasure in the world and didn't realize that marriage is a vehicle for sanctification and fruit and not just pleasure. So, you, need, you both need to grow in service. When there's a libido difference, one person needs to go outside of themselves to serve the other person and maybe do it a little more than they would otherwise like to. And the other person whose libido is high and higher needs to go outside of themselves in service and stop bugging the other person all the time and talk about it, what expectations are. And if uh, you can't have those conversations or you the conversations always uh, turn into fights, then you can talk to uh, an older couple who's maybe worked through this. You could talk to a therapist. There are resources out there. But the short answer is you both need to grow in service. That's really good. And, and I think that's, that's the point is we talked about is it's about like marriage is about submitting to each other. Not one person's a sex slave. Not one person, not one person's always getting and one person's always giving. Because there's a thing that when we serve one another in love, there's gonna be a heart to, um, to give and receive. Like, like that's what love is. Love by its nature does not just take and love by its nature does not just give. And so it's very important to let God sanctify that part of us. But I do think that opposites do attract. And I think like, you know, even the male sex drive is in general a lot stronger than the female sex drive. Or when the female sex drive is picking up, the male one's slowing down. I don't know, it feels like a divine comedy sometimes or else maybe there's a purpose in it we're supposed to figure out because you know we're not just we were not just made for sex Amen. you know but we were also made sexual creatures so if we've given our lives to someone else that that's part of it it is part of it it's responsible and it's ungodly to force and it's ungodly to withhold without the consent of another paul talks about it plainly like except for by like mutual consent. So it's, it's very important to have a heart to serve one another. And we're gonna both in service have to go beyond what we want to. But if sex always is about you, either you not giving it or getting it, or about you demanding it and having to have it, neither of those please God. And sexual anorexia, and he could probably speak more of this, is just as much of a... Um, pattern of unhealthiness as sexual indulgences to someone who's an addict. Can you speak to that a little bit? Sure. Um, how to not get too involved. Um, first, I think I would like to take just a minute and the word addiction gets thrown around a lot. And I want to differentiate between something that's bad that I probably shouldn't do and an addiction, okay? Uh, an addiction, the, the, the best brief explanation I can give for what addiction is is psychological dependence, which is different than physical dependence. It's the thing that you need to have to manage your emotions. And something that I can promise, I don't like hyperbole, so when I say this, I mean it. I promise you will always, always figure out a way to manage your emotions. Everything from taking a short walk to killing yourself is about managing your emotions. So uh, sexual addiction happens when someone doesn't have the internal resources 
to handle whatever the chaos they feel in their mind is, and they find an outlet, whether they find that outlet in porn or alcohol or heroin or gambling or fill in the blank. That's the thing they use as a stimulus, as a distraction to keep the noise in their mind down. Now, another way to deal with that that people choose is just completely shut that door. I'm not going to think about that. I'm not going to have anything to do with it because maybe there's shame around it. Maybe there's trauma around it. Maybe there's just an upbringing that says that's dirty. And they say, I'm just going to have nothing to do with it. And that's not healthy either. And that's what is referred to as sexual anorexia. Does that make any sense? Okay. And if it doesn't, um, save that follow-up question until the end. Um, so these next set of questions are about LGBTQ. Um, it says, is there any room for healthy sexuality in LGBTQ relationships? I'm asking about a committed relationship between LGBTQ. I think this is a two-part question. And so I would say uh, like committed and healthy are not the same thing. Because I can be committed to a very bad thing. There's people committed to stealing. There's people who are committed to adultery. People committed to human trafficking, okay? So uh, like commitment and health are not the same thing. So what I would say, is there any room for healthy sexuality in LGBTQ relationships? The answer, according to the Bible, is a categorical no. It doesn't mean people can't love each other or care about each other. It doesn't mean people can't wanna be together it doesn't mean people can't struggle. But if we define health as by what God says, I don't think there can be healthy sex in that relationship. And that might feel a lot of things to you, but um, we, we talk about part of discipleship is dying to ourselves and letting God's ideas and let God's values and God's desires take preeminence in our lives and our marriages and our families and our churches. So I do not believe things outside of God's best can ever be healthy. Because that's where ultimate health comes from. Like God made the world a certain way and then things broke and devolved from there. So if we're talking about health, we wanna get back to the original plan of what God's kingdom plan is for marriage. And so I, I, I don't think, um, yeah. I don't think I have anything to add to that. Okay. Um, it says, I have a relative who says he's gay and he's been this lifestyle for 10 years. And his question was to me, if homosexuality is an abomination to the Lord, why did he make the act so pleasurable? Pleasure. Pleasure is designed to be a spur, a goad, not an end in itself. It's a goad, not a goal, hmm. which is a very pastory sort of sounding thing to say. Borrow that. That's good. You can have it. That's fine. <laughs> so pleasure, if pursued for itself as an end in itself, will not only ruin itself, but it will ruin the end to which it was designed to lead you. I'll give you an example. Um, let's say that, okay, food, food is designed to taste good. It's also um, a part of having a healthy physical body, right? And so if you eat a healthy meal and it tastes good, that's great. But if you say, oh, this is, this is pleasurable, I'm going to pursue this um, to get as much pleasure as I can, you're gonna end up escalating and escalating and pretty soon all you're having is Chick-fil-A and candy bars and it tastes just about, you're getting about as much pleasure out of it as you would the healthy food, except now you're unhealthy because you are pursuing the pleasure for its own sake. Um, another example, pornography. Sex feels good for lots of good reasons, but if you say, oh, well, this is good, and so I'm going to pursue it because I want as much pleasure as I can, you're gonna escalate into ruining your marriage because you have pursued this pleasure for its own sake and you're not at the end of the day even going to be getting that much pleasure out of it, but anyone who's been really addicted will tell you that they don't even do it because it feels good, they do it because they are sick and tired of resisting the constant nagging call to have to do that thing. They don't even like it anymore. And then they've messed up other parts of their lives because they've given themselves over to the pursuit of that pleasure. Sometimes for lots of um, other underlying reasons like trauma and things like that, but there is a difference between pleasure and what is morally appropriate. And if you pursue pleasure for its own sake, you will end up in, in bad places. 
And I think in reference to the homosexual act being, being so pleasurable, I don't like, have any grid for that, but I know sex can be pleasurable. And I think most of us aren't addicted to things that don't have, have like a reward involved. Like that's, that's the whole point is like, it, it, it just, it's something, an idol is anything good made great, Timothy Keller said. And so things that we learn to self-soothe with, if it's gambling, if it's porn, if it's masturbation, if it's violence, like there's something about these things that feel good to us. And so we indulge them. There even people who hurt themselves, well, how can that feel good? I don't know. There's something that they get that feels good, that releases something, just like the endorphins of control or whatever. But because it made it good doesn't mean that, because it feels good doesn't mean it's God's intention. It doesn't mean it's God's intention. It can feel really good to give someone the bird when they pull in front of me. It can feel really good to punch someone in the face if they tick me off. It can feel really good to abuse someone else sexually or physically or emotionally or to have the last word and say that zinger. It can feel good, but it doesn't mean that it is good. And I think that the enemy masquerades as an angel of light, it says in the word. And so there's things that can look and seem and feel really good, but that are actually catastrophic. And so I think we've got to first look at God, not the feeling or not the manifestation or not what I get from it. Because like in the end, a lot of these things, most people, the first time that they take a drug, they don't get hooked. But it's like, you talk to them 10 years later and it's like, if I had never grabbed that pipe, if I never went to that party, if I, you know what I mean? It's just like, because it engulfs us. It engulfs us and sin ensnares us. And, you know, like God says, uh, like to Esau, that sin's crouching at your, not Esau, um, uh, Cain, he says, sin's crouching at your doorstep and desires to master you. So it can feel really good and seem really good, but then end up as a complete disaster. And I think the, the homosexuality thing and the LGBTQ is there's so much about it because people are assigning, they're assigning, if, if you affirm me, if you, if, you, if you accept me, you have to affirm me. And acceptance and affirmation are not the same thing. I can accept someone and love someone for who they are in Christ and not hate them and think that they're you know, the scourge of the earth, but I don't have to affirm what they do. And I think God loves people that struggle with homosexuality, struggle with transgender behavior, bisexuality. He loves people that struggle with sex addiction. He loves people that have done awful things to themselves or had terrible things done. He loves us, but doesn't mean that he affirms the behavior. Um, it says, do you think some people are born gay or transgender? When someone tells me they felt a certain way their whole life, I have no good reason to disbelieve them. Um, I think that the mistake that's made in, on both sides of this issue is God doesn't make mistakes. So the people on one side of the issue will say, God doesn't make mistakes and I've felt this way my whole life, therefore it must be okay. The other side says, God doesn't make mistakes, so, and this shouldn't be the case, therefore you couldn't have been born that way, mm. right? Um, my oldest son was born with bilateral club feet. And if you don't know what that means, uh, your foot, like my palm is the bottom of your foot, both of his feet were turned up like this when he was born. And he had to have surgery and casts for a long time to get his feet going the right way. And something that's easily forgotten, uh, it's a teaching of the Christian church, is our sinful nature isn't the only thing that fell when humanity fell. All of nature fell. And it teaches that when Jesus comes back, all of creation will be redeemed. And so every single one of us has something, lots of things probably, in us naturally, and by naturally I mean just things that we were born with, that aren't good. All of us need to lead transformed lives. There are things in all of us that we need to slay, uh, give over to, uh, present yourself as a living, living sacrifice until you can say, uh, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Those, those things, whatever it happens to be, needs to be the focus of your sanctification. Hmm. And we all have that stuff. So I guess the short answer is, I don't know. I don't know what's in their head. But if someone tells me that, I don't have a good reason to say, no, that's not the case. All I'm gonna do in that situation is alienate them from the love of Christ. Yeah, and I don't think, like Jesus says, like who sinned this man or his parents? He said, neither, so God's glory could be revealed. And so, could you be born gay? Yes. Could you be born uh, like mentally ill? Yes. Could you be born... 
like he said, with two club feet. My daughter was born with heart issues and she's deaf. You know, it's like she's, you know, we, we're born with stuff, but would we ever say that Jesus can't touch it? Because we see Jesus healing people with like new maladies, the woman who bled for 12 years. But we also see Jesus heal people who were born with things. And so it doesn't really matter if you were born or you came across it later. God's power can transcend all of it. And when we say, you can have all of that, but you can't have my sexuality, then we start getting into other theological things like, is the kingdom for us? Now, it doesn't mean that we won't struggle into the kingdom. It doesn't mean we won't limp into the kingdom. It doesn't mean that we'll ever get 100% on that test maybe into the kingdom. But if we say, Jesus, you can have it all except that, I think he will look at us and say, um, it, it was, it was, I'm the king. And so it doesn't mean that the king isn't generous and merciful and isn't willing to touch every part of it because there's stuff in my life I struggle with all the time still. But God's grace is sufficient. And there's times where he will supernaturally take it away or it'll be a means of sanctification that causes us to pray that we have to rely on his grace and dependence for. So can someone be a homosexual and be a Christian? Yes. But I think it's, now I think that if we say, well, I'm not gonna give that part to God, I don't know about that then. But that's no different than someone else who says, well, I'm gonna hold on to the drugs and be a Christian. Willful sin and struggling with sin are not the same thing. That we limp into the kingdom is one thing, but it's another thing to say, you can't have this part. Because we know what Jesus said to the rich young ruler. The guy's like, I've done everything. And then Jesus brings to him like the money and it says, the guy went away sad. Because the guy was 99.9%. Jesus is like, it's Jesus everything or Jesus nothing. And so we've got to trust God. Even if you have a different idea about sex, about who you are, how you were made. None of that matters in compare. What is God remaking you for? That's where it is. And what is Jesus's capacity to heal and change our lives? And do we look in the Bible and say, God, do whatever you want with my life. And so I know for some people, this is very hurtful, very painful, very culturally counter and makes us seem like old fuddy-duddies. But... Um, the word's clear on it. And so we just, we gotta stand with God. Um, it says, I have two granddaughters who identify as males or that's what they wanna be called. How do I love them and stand for truth when the school, principal, teachers, friends encourage us and it drives a wedge between the kids and their parents? That's a good question. I think you have to love people. You have to be Jesus to those people. And you have to accept people where they are. Um, these things can be especially sticky because they're very not only accepted but celebrated and encouraged by a lot of the culture. I encourage anyone who has anyone in their lives, or honestly, if you just want to learn more about it, there's an excellent book called Love is an Orientation about uh, a missionary to Boys Town, Chicago. Uh, and it's a fantastic book about loving people into relationship with Jesus and then letting the Holy Spirit do, do that work. Love is an orientation. Um, I think I'd leave it at that because those, kind of, those sorts of things can be really complicated in different situations. But if you have someone in your life like that, I encourage you to look into that uh, book and the other resources by that author. His name's Andrew Marin, M-A-R-I-N. That's good. And I would say three things to keep in mind with people in your life that are struggling with LGBTQ stuff is one, you don't have to fight them and force them. So one, you don't have to. What, I would pray your guts out and ask God for opportunities to lovingly talk about the kingdom and identity and who they are to, to God. Because the Holy Spirit's like the one who convinces and changes. Jesus says, no one comes and follows unless the Spirit draws them. And he gave us the Spirit because he knows that we can't change without it. And then the third thing is, is... Um, you do not have to be defined in love. Accepting and affirming are not the same thing. You can say, this is not God's best for you. I love you, and I love you in Christ. You're still my child. You're still my son. Well, I'm, I'm a daughter. Well, you're, you're a son to me and God, but I love you. Liz, who you are. Don't get hung up on that stuff. Let the Holy Spirit do the changing. But also, too, we've got to make sure our hearts are pure before God. And so um, when it comes down to it, we, we've got to trust his definition, like of 
who we are as humans. And it's not just who we are as humans, but what his new intentions to be in the kingdom age to come. So Jesus can transform and heal anything. Um, so there's a lot of sex, uh, there's, there's more questions about this next thing than anything, and it's the topic of masturbation. Uh, for some people, uh, just a topic that I'll talk about for some people, um, sounds like a, a, a favorite topic. So, um, <laughs> so it says, is master, here, this, is masturbation sinful? Is masturbation bad? Counselor. Thanks, Ryan. Yes. Um, <laughs> um, let me start off by saying that the traditional uh, passages in the Bible that are said to concern masturbation aren't. There's a story in the New Testament of Tamar and Onan, and the story says that he spilled a seed on the ground and God killed him for it. Uh, there is... The reason God was angry with them is, uh, I won't get into the long explanation of the customs of a tribal patriarchal society, but he was supposed to be taking care of his dead brother's family, and he refused to do it. He was taking his pleasure from a woman and not doing his duty to the community, um, and that's what God killed him for. Um, however, so that I wanted to kind of get out of the way, because that's the thing that that is, is cited most often. What does apply to the masturbation discussion is the rules about marriage and the rules about um, fantasy and lusting. Jesus said, you've heard it say, don't commit adultery. And I say, don't lust after a woman in your heart. And so it's very, very difficult to impossible to do that, to, to masturbate without having some kind of fantasy role in your head. The Bible does not very specifically address masturbation as an issue directly. And when that happens, you have to kind of take the other issues the Bible talks about and apply that to the situation. And the thing the Bible talks about is lust and fantasy and marriage. And so I can't say from a, I can't cite any scripture that says this is bad in itself. That being said, Sex is not for everyone all the time. Sex is for certain people that have made agreements to each other and God in the community to use sex in specific, healthy, fruitful ways. So, is it God's best? Probably not. <clears throat> um, I can't say anywhere from Scripture that it is de facto sinful all the time, period. Yeah. The only situation that I've that is even hypothetically possible where it could be healthy is in the case of people who are married and they both know that it's going on so you're not keeping secrets from your spouse and that you're able to do it while only thinking about your spouse. And those are very slim and those are also situations where it's very common and maybe even likely that if you start that ball rolling down the hill and you go, oh, I can stop at 10 feet down, maybe not, maybe not. And you need to be really, really careful. So. I can't say it is de facto wrong all the time, period, but it's probably not God's best for you, and even the situations where it might be hypothetically permissible, they can still be dangerous. Yeah, I would say Matthew chapter five, verse 27 to 30 says this. You've heard what it said, did not commit adultery, but I tell you, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out. Throw it away, it's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand caused you to stumble, cut it off, throw it away, or it's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go to hell. I think what that is talking about there, I think it's talking about the sequence of lust, lust manifold. Because then the next section, uh, like, is divorce. And you've heard me say before that the one thing that's supposed to distinguish marriage from all other relationships on earth is the fact that that's the one person you have sex with. That's the thing that seals the covenant even physically, if two people are virgins, that's the thing that seals the covenant, was the breaking of flesh, the transfer of blood and water, and we know all that happens if a person, if two virgins, you know, come together, and that happens. So the physical sealing of the covenant, and then that act is the, the procreative act. So we know that. What Jesus is talking about here is he says, but I'll tell you, it's not just like adultery that these people were worried about, because these people were 
You know, they were, it was okay for men to commit adultery in their society, but not for women. Jesus is like bringing it back. And then he says, if you look at a woman lustfully. So he calls out men on this in a very male dominant society and say, listen, if you are lusting after women, it's not just you having sex with her. It's if if you're going after women that you're not married to in your heart. So he says, in your eye, if you look at them lustfully, fantasy, he says, um, he says, so it starts with your, what's an unchecked thought in your mind, with your eye, then your mind. The eye is the lamp of your body. And then he says, if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. You can't change everything you see, but you can change how you see everything. Secondly, he says, then if your right hand causes you to sin, chop it off. That's a direct reference in, in like the Judaic literature to masturbation. What do you do with thought first? You see someone really attractive, you fantasize, you capture that thought, you dwell on it, you fantasize. What happens? You get stimulated, you take care of business. This is a direct, he's not talking about stealing there. You look at these whole 10 verses or so when he goes from like adultery to divorce, that's, it's in there and it's, it's talking about that, that act of masturbation. And so I don't think, I, I'm not, like he said, I'm not, gonna, I'm not gonna cut out the caveat that he said, but I think in general, if you're looking at people you're not married to and you're going to self-service, that doesn't honor God. And I can tell you this too, if, you don't, if you're struggling with uh, like pornography and acting out anyway, if you don't masturbate, you probably won't look at porn too. Because a lot of times we just think, oh, if I stop looking at porn, I'm good, but I'm still gonna self-gratify. But even taking it back further, well, once you don't self-gratify, you start quelling that desire, and then you check how you're looking at people and what you're meditating on. And it's this whole sequence. Jesus is like, says, basically, if you can check what your eyes look at or check what your mind absorbs and what it goes around, you're probably not gonna do A, B, and C. And then walking all the way back, he's like, and if you wanna not have an affair, check the way you're looking at people. You see that whole sequence? Like, they were so worried about adultery, and Jesus is like, man, you guys got dirty hearts. And so that's what he was talking about. Um, it says, masturbation, pornography are viewed as sin. Is it healthy for a husband and wife to share pictures of each other for personal pleasure that aren't able to be physically together for a period of time, work, illness, uh, military, whatever? I think that goes back to that same question. You know, is that God's best for you? Maybe not. But again, that very kind of slim cutout, I can't say in the Bible, like, why that would not be okay. Um, do you have anything extra? I would say, um, and gosh, I hope my mom and dad aren't listening, but um, <laughs> seriously, because the first pornography I ever found was pictures my mom and dad took of themselves, and it set me on a track of things I wish I'd never seen when I was three or four years old. So you take those pictures, be very cautious where you store those. Seriously, and it's like, I, and I, I, don't, I don't think it's a great idea, but like he said, there's that caveat, but like, uh, be very careful, because once you take it, that stuff's out there. And so the embarrassment, the openings, um, that was, yeah, so sorry mom and dad, but hey, you guys left them out there, so. Um, um, if masturbation's a sin and is not needed for uh, the release, how do we explain wet dreams? Is there a physiological need to ejaculate? We, how do we explain to our teens to remain celibate it, and, but yet not have shame and guilt over the physical sensations they deal with? Is there a physiological need to ejaculate? For most guys, yes. It just, your sperm die, and they're not useful. And so you have a biological, like you gotta do something with them. So they're either removed from your body or reabsorbed and sometimes they're reabsorbed there is no moral culpability in that because you're not awake to make any decisions about what you're doing so it's not a bad thing when it comes to feel that and this this there's a, a theme in this in several of the questions especially some we haven't gotten to yet of this is uncomfortable to talk about with my spouse with my teens get over it um, <laughs> I mean, it is hard, it's rough, but this is really, really important. This is enormously important. Um, <clears throat> it's important to have a good relationship, especially if we're talking about to your teens. It's important to have a good relationship before you 
try and have these conversations, um, you'll have more honor and respect from them in that situation. It's a good thing to model Christ in all the areas of your life as best you can. We are all still, you know, being sanctified. But you'll get a whole lot more respect from them if that's the case. If you come at them with, do as I say and not as I do, they're not going to listen to you. When it comes to talking with your spouse, there are... The advice I give to a lot of my clients when they need to have a difficult conversation is I say they should start with, can we talk, or something like that. Because it's a whole lot easier to say, can we talk, versus something about sex, <laughs> um, just like out of the blue. But the, the phrase, can we talk, once you have it out there, has kind of committed you to the conversation. It's a cue that something serious is about to happen and I need to pay attention, right? So that's my advice for starting difficult conversations. Hmm. is start up with some kind of cue that's easier to get out, like can we talk or I have something like that. I would avoid, I have a bone to pick with you. That just sets person on the, the defensive really quick and you're not going to have a productive conversation. <laughs> that's good. Um, <clears throat> I have nothing to add to that. Um, so a couple questions real quick in these two are, what's okay within the confines of marriage bed, such as role-playing, toys, etc.? And is oral sex okay in marriage? Counselor. <laughs> Thanks, Ryan. <laughs> I don't have a good reason to say that any of that stuff is not okay as long as consensual. Again, if, if you, uh, we talked a little bit about like you both need to grow in service and if one person is like, oh, I want to do all this stuff. The other person is like, has a strong aesthetic aversion to those things. Then you don't do it. Um, if both people are willing and interested, then that's okay. As long as you're physically safe and it's consensual and there is no, I don't necessarily want to say hesitation, but yeah. aversion, then that's okay. Yeah. I think to do things that harm each other, like some people like punching and defecating, like you're not meant to defraud another person in sex. Yeah, and if that, I, I, there are lines in, like, the BDSM yeah, stuff. Yeah, if there's stuff in that, like, that's not okay. To invite another person into your marriage is wrong. To watch porn together is not the thing. You know, so it's like, I would say within healthy boundaries, you know, it's, you just, does this honor God and the person that I'm asking this of? That's all, those are always the first two questions. Not like, do I like it? Because, like, I might just like some things because I'm weird. Like, like, they're, like I've heard of women when they're pregnant, some of the tastes that they have, some even wanting to drink bleach. Just because you have a taste for it doesn't mean it's gonna end well. And so we gotta think, is this bring honor to God and this other person? And sometimes we just like weird stuff because we're weird and we don't need to impugn that or proliferate it. So um, is oral sex okay? Like I said, it's gotta be coexisting, but sure, if that's your thing, you know, go for it. If, if your partner's consensual, but the badger to be right or to talk about, well, someone else's wife or husband does this. Like, that's never okay. You don't bring other people into it. Um, what should we do if we, um, wait, let me ask this one. Um, what is okay and not okay in a dating relationship? This is very simple. Um, be pure, be pure. Purity is not going all the way except for sex. Purity is not, I'm gonna try it out before I get married to see if it works. Purity is, even if you're divorced and you've been married or maybe uh, like you're a widow, you're still called to sexual purity. So anything that doesn't affirm God's best for that other person and you stimulating someone else to the point they wanna have sex with you. I mean, I would tell you students this all the time. I mean, and I might sound prudish. If you can kiss without getting dialed up. I think kissing's meant to do that. I mean, when you're kissing, the only thing separating you is clothes. Your body's feeling all that stuff. So if kissing turns you on, I would avoid that too. Because we're not supposed to throw fire in our laps. And so you might say, oh, that's whatever. I'm just saying, like, if, if, I, if I don't want the flood to come, like, like, keep the dam shut up. And once you start kissing, if that turns you on, and it's game on from there and you can't keep your hands yourself, then you gotta do that. Because God would rather us keep that in check and have healthy marriages than to blow it in dating. 
The uh, late, great philosopher Robin Williams said in one of his stand-up skits that uh, God gave man a brain and a penis and only enough blood to run one at a time. So I completely agree with Ryan. You've got to keep your boundaries where you're able to stay present. And that, I mean, that applies to women, too. It's just funnier with guys. Um, you've got to keep your boundaries far enough back wherever it is so that you can keep your, your, your head on straight. Uh, has, to be able to make sure that that, that momentum, that emotional and cognitive momentum doesn't get out of control. So if, like, French, French kissing, if that does it for you, then that's too much. Yep. If you can't stop, if, yeah. And it's, a lot of these questions want, like, where's the hard line? Show me the Bible verse where it says, here's the hard line. The hard line is, be like Jesus. Yeah, and if you can see Jesus pawing some person he's dating then have at it. If you can see Jesus using someone else for his sexual pleasure, even to their violation, like seriously, like that's, that's the baseline, it's Christ. Like I always tell my kids, like, we're like, well, our friends are doing it. It's like, I, we're not raising you to be like your friends, we're raising you to be like Jesus. So as disciples, we take the Jesus road, and that's a really high bar. Jesus says, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, you have no place in the kingdom. And so you read like the Sermon on the Mount. That's why he says, y'all are just concerned not having adultery. I'm gonna pull it back to what you're looking at and how you're looking at it and what you're thinking. So if you can French kiss someone and not be thinking about, I wanna touch you in other places, then okay. But I would say beyond that, I would say you're probably stepping into a zone where it's not honoring God. Last couple questions, because we're, we're right at the edge. Um, is taking birth control bad because it interrupts God's plan? I think that's up to you and your spouse. I think if you're married, it's probably a good thing to have children, if you can. One of the best ways to raise disciples is to have kids. But, you know, I have a friend that has 12. It's like, dude, it's okay to take some birth control, Andre. <laughs> um, you know, uh, or if there's just, you know, whatever. I, I think that's up to you. Or if you're like, hey, we just got married. We want to wait three or five years so we graduate college or whatever. We're moving around. Just... It's a, like, ask, ask the Lord. That's, that's between you and him. I don't think it's, I'm not gonna take like the Catholic stance, like it's categorically no. I don't know. I don't know enough of the science to know what it all does, but I think that's between you and your spouse. It's not okay for one person to say, it's my body, I'll take birth control if I want, or you have to take birth control. If you're married, you agree on this stuff because your body's not your own anymore, technically, once you get married. And so that's, I think that's the move. Um, there's a couple things. Are we gonna hear from any female perspectives? We'd love to. Maybe we'll get a female moderator up here sometime. That's not in the cards today. Um, so I think we'll, um, we, we would love to do that. And if you have questions, bring them in. Keep sending them in because we wanna answer and we wanna do these things from time to time. Um, and last question, we want to get to it, even though we're right at the time. We have not talked about women who struggle with porn addiction, either books, videos. What resources are there for women with this struggle? And are erotic novels sinful or bad to read? I'll start with the last question first. Erotic novels are porn. Just because they don't have pictures doesn't make them not pornography. It's something that is intentionally designed to arouse lust. Um, when I work with my sex addict clients, one of the first things I do is make uh, an abstinence and boundaries list, right? And the abstinence list is uh, whatever I don't want to do ever again, you know? And on that, of course, one of the things is, for most of them, is no porn. Because what a lot of them, one of the things a lot of them struggle with. Um, and then I always ask the follow-up question, what is porn? And I'll, because lots of people use lots of things that might not technically be considered porn. I def we define that in those circumstances as something I intentionally use for the purpose of sexual arousal. Hmm. And so whether there's actual pictures or videos, that's not as important as what am I using this for? I'm using this for titillation. Um, so the last part of that question, uh, I'll answer first. The first part of the question, um, that's a really great question. And unfortunately, there's not nearly as many resources for women who struggle with this stuff as there are men. Because for two reasons, one, they're just numerically more men who struggle with it, and two, it's more socially acceptable for men to struggle with it. Mm. Um, 
it's easier for a man to just be a horn dog, and like even if they're trying to not be that, it's more kind of expected of men that that be the case. So my recommendations are um, two really good books. Uh, the there's a secular book by a guy named Patrick Carnes called Out of the Shadow, uh, which is not gender specific. Um, there is another book, which from is a sexual addiction book called Pure Desire by Ted Roberts which is not gender specific. So there's a lot of good stuff in there for uh, men and women. And there is a group, a 12-step group called SLAA. There are a few different 12-step groups that deal with sexual compulsivity issues, but SLAA is Sex and Love Addicts Anonymous. And you're much more likely to find other women who struggle with that sort of thing in those groups versus SA or SAA, which I won't take time to describe, but SLAA is what you want to look into if that's something you're dealing with. And I would say too that, um, would, would you say it's fair to say that someone who's a uh, like sexual addiction counselor could help a male or a female? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. My, um, I think I said that I was a certified sex addiction therapist and we're, we're put through all of that training with, um, the, the gender differences between addiction and male and female and relationship addiction and what that looks like and all that kind of stuff. So if you find someone, uh, a therapist with the letters CSAT behind their name, they'll know, they'll know how to help you. Yeah, and I would say, I, I don't know other agencies, but I know Jordan's agency, uh, Agency Counseling Alliance is up like Winton Road area, but there's online things you can do with, with their people. So if you want to meet online, you don't want to drive all the way up there, there are women on their staff. And there's a couple other places in Cincinnati. We're glad to find resources. I don't know of many things in Northern Kentucky, but um, I know uh, uh, Margie Appenfelder, who's one of our elders here, goes here for a long time. Margie works in this arena as a counselor, and so she could point you, maybe if you're looking for face-to-face, -face, that's a little closer, but... There's stuff like that for everyone. And the Transforming Betrayal group <clears throat> that we're doing gets into that some. So, um, yeah. <sighs> we don't have time for live questions. Sorry. Um, yeah. <clears throat> and I wanna thank you all that are still part of this church. <laughs> <laughs> who have lived through this the last several weeks. Like, like, I know this stuff is hard. I know this stuff is hard. I know some of it's hard to listen to, to hear, if it's not your challenge, or maybe it's just gross for you. You grew up in an environment where people don't talk about that, or church. We don't ever wanna be a, a church that dodges the hard stuff because we believe in those margins is where the kingdom is usually first gonna break in. The kingdom comes from the inside out, but then the outside in. And so we um, wanna be a church that will talk about things that's in the Bible. And we know the Bible talks a lot about sex. And so we're open to talking about it. We know that we're all here as a result of it. So there's only one person that wasn't, his name's Jesus, and he still chooses to talk about a lot, uh, like in his autobiography. So that said, we love you all and thank you. Thank you, thank you for your grace, for your questions, for your asking, and for your love of the kingdom and love of people because this stuff's messy. This stuff is so messy. So our team's gonna play, um, and we'll kind of just take a couple minutes and then go out there, get your kids, and wave a potluck. So Jordan, thank you. You're a ninja. You saved my life. Thanks, Ryan. I'm happy to be here. <clears throat> I'm gonna give Jordan a standing O because this guy has helped lots of people already in our congregation and elsewhere. And you're awesome. I love you.